0: I am Dracula.
1: It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and...
2: Well, and with all this, I I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome.
0: Listen to them. Children of the night. What music, Amy? You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here.
1: everybody what's up welcome back i really need to find another way to open the goddamn show i really do um this show could be a total complete disaster we're going to say this up front at the beginning we haven't had the guests on yet we have two guests on tonight we have gary rhodes and robert guffey coming on to talk about Bella lugosi and the monogram hopefully hopefully here's why we say hopefully because we have to call two separate landlines and because we use skype and Skype is a fickle bitch, it may not work. Plus, if, if you are a longtime listener, hopefully most of you are, you know that when we do phone calls out to do interviews as opposed to using Skype normally, and I know everybody, I know where this is going, but hold on. Every time we try to use phone calls with Skype, it gets kind of weird. It gets really, really, really weird. And then the fact we're going to be doing two phone lines is going to be kind of strange. So this may be a total, complete freaking disaster from the start. We don't know. We'll see. But I have been wanting to do a Bella Lugosi show since we first started this show, and we've never been able to pull one off because we've never been able to get anybody on the show with knowledge about Bella Lugosi to be able to do a Bella Lugosi show. Gee, I wonder what song I'm going to close the show out with this
0: week. Bella Lugosi is dead.
1: <laughs> I always manage to slip that in every Halloween. Mm-hmm. And how apropos and fitting it is that we were able to pull this off right before Halloween. So, anyways, we're going to try to pull this off and see if it works. And hopefully we can get a nice, decent interview out of this. I apologize ahead of time if it doesn't work. If it goes great, I'm probably going to sound like an idiot right now. And then um, we've got voicemails and stuff afterwards. Because apparently everybody thinks that you've either left the show or I've kicked you off of the show. Or you've died in some tragic meteor falling from the sky getting crushed by a mushroom incident or something. I don't know. I think what it is in regards to is when we told everybody that I wanted you to do another spark episode. And you said, no, nobody wants to hear another spark episode. And I think they heard that and things got combobulated and twisted. And everybody thinks that you have left the show, even though you're not going to be on the show next week because you're going to have a house full of rioting teenage girls. Yeah. Yes. So anyways, um, I guess we're going to see everybody at the other side and let's jump into this interview. Fingers crossed toes crossed um, whatever powers and gods that be I hope this <laughs> thing works the way it's supposed to work and we will see everybody at the other side okay All right. So tonight we have with us Gary Rhodes.
3: It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks very much for
2: asking me
1: and Robert Guffey. I,
2: I, it suddenly sounded like you were speaking through a colander for a moment, so I <laughs> I, I, I'm, I missed that last like, 30 seconds.
1: Oh, I was just introducing you. As I said before we started recording this show, this may be a series of disasters because we've never done a phone conversation with two people via Skype also using phones. So I apologize if our connection gets a little weird and wonky. Um, yeah, but um, we have both of you guys on the show to talk about your newest book, Bella Lugosi and Monogram Nine. As I was telling you before we started recording, I've been wanting to do a show we've we've really wanted to do one since we started this show nine years ago about Bella Lugosi and we've really haven't found anybody that's knowledgeable or you know willing to come on the show and talk about it. And lo and behold, you guys wrote this book about these nine obscure films that Bella recorded or I should say that made back in back in the 40s I believe it was. Was it like during was it around World War II or just before World War II?
2: Right during World War II, during. yes.
1: Yeah, I got to ask everybody that comes to bella lugosi a vast majority of people and i'm one of them came to bella lugosi through the ed wood film um plan nine from outer space you know and the one that johnny depp played um and that's you know plus and it goes back from there if you were a punk rocker you you know you listen to the misfits and you get to you know plan nine and all of those b-rate movies and stuff like that so um this book is kind of about, these are these nine obscure films. They were they were B-rate even in their time, and they were just, they were kind of farcical and, and, and crazy. They had some mis- like really bizarre plot lines and stuff to them. So what made you guys decide to want to write this book about these movies?
2: Do you, do you want me to start, Gary, or? Please, please, go right ahead. Uh, okay, well, first of all, maybe we should note that we're recording this on the 19th, and so tomorrow will be Lugosi's 137th birthday. Uh, uh, if, if he were still alive, of course, um, so happy birthday uh, bella um, i uh, you know uh, I first started to think the the, um, the chapter my first chapter in the book, which is the second chapter, which is all about invisible ghosts because we Gary and I both wrote a chapter on invisible ghosts, which is the first of the monogram films i I started thinking about it when one night I was with a friend of mine, Randy Copang who uh, actually you should have on your show at a certain point because Randy is a ufologist. He wrote a book called Camouflage Through Limited Disclosure. But uh, aside from sharing interest in UFOs, we also both share an interest in in Lugosi. And so we were at – Randy and I were at Lucy's El Adobe Cafe, which is a sort of a legendary uh, Mexican restaurant that's right across the street from Paramount Studios. And uh, Randy and I were got to talking about Lugosi, and I mentioned that it was ironic that Martin Landau won the Academy Award for portraying Lugosi in, in Ed Wood. But Lugosi never won an award for the trailblazing roles that he portrayed in, in the 1930s, like Dracula and, and in The Black Cat and White Zombie and Son of Frankenstein and, and et cetera. And, uh, and Randy replied, well, you know, icons don't win awards. And, and I, I suddenly started thinking about that. And, and that's if you think about it, that's true. Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe or James Dean or John Wayne, these like larger-than-life figures, they, they don't win awards. It's almost like you can't sum up their career with a single uh, award or a single role even. Even though we, we associate Lugosi with, with Dracula, uh, the fact is that his influence sort of per, pervades beyond uh, Dracula into the Ed Wood films. Into the the monogram PRC films of the 40s, and then into the into the future with with the the goth culture of the 80s being kicked off with of Bauhaus and Bill Lugosi's "Dead" uh, is a song that's generally considered to be the first you know gothic rock song. And even just the other day, I, I I sent Gary a link to a news report in the Hollywood Reporter that Legendary Comics is doing a new comic book based entirely on on Lugosi. and so. As, as randy and i were talking about this i asked randy what well, what what attracts you you know about Legosi?" and and randy said well his films even the worst of them like like murder by television uh which is a great title uh even the worst of them are borderline surrealism is is what he said and i and that that phrase stuck with me and i started viewing the films through that that lens seeing them as Borderline surrealism, and in fact, that's the phrase I use in, in in my first chapter in the book. It's invisible ghost, the films of of Bell Lugosi seen as borderline surrealism, and uh, yeah, and I started thinking about the this notion of a kind of unacknowledged conspiracy of intentional and accidental surrealists operating in Hollywood in the in the thirties and forties, and you had directors like Edgar Ulmer who directed lugosi and the Black Cat, or Robert Florey, who directed lugosi and Murders in the Rue Morgue, who were purposely injecting a kind of transgressive strain of expressionism and and surrealism into mainstream Hollywood films. Uh and I think their intent was to to provoke and and to sort of explore this unexamined Uh, dream life of of American consciousness and of course Flory and and Almer were were foreigners. They were from Europe so I think they saw America through very different eyes Uh, and Lugosi sort of becomes the spearhead of these productions first in in A films like like Dracula and then later in the B films of of the 40s like Invisible Ghost uh, which was directed by Joseph Lewis or, or the eight man uh, directed by William Bodine. Uh, and so I started reading the manifestos of Andre Breton, who's considered to be the father of the surrealist movement. And in in, in his manifestos, Breton talks about one of the main methods to create a, a surrealist work of art is to not think, to do it uh, spontaneously or through automatic writing. And uh, so, so Gary, uh, which uh, Gary can can talk about in a moment. Gary interviewed uh, D, uh, Gerald uh, Schnitzer, uh, who wrote *The Corpse Vanishes* and Bowery at Midnight*, two of the Monogram films, and and he said how that's exactly how he wrote those films. Uh, there was no time to think. He wrote Bowery at Midnight* in, I think two days, and so sometimes these films were shot were written in two days and shot in under a week, and then put into theaters almost immediately after that. And imagine a Hollywood studio doing that. Uh, Today, the the way these films were produced encouraged uh, either accidentally or intentionally this kind of surrealist thinking, and so as a result, you have these insane – Monogram films, and at the time, as you mentioned, they were considered bottom of the barrel entertainments. But in retrospect, you can kind of see that these these films were were kind of daring to uh, mix genres in very uh, unexpected ways. That were maybe 15 or 20 years ahead of uh, mainstream Hollywood. The, the 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 films are kind of like um, they're art, art films. Ones. They're they're in a way they're they're art films disguised as uh, popular culture. Uh, but, but Max Ernst described surrealism as as the marriage of a sewing machine and an umbrella on an operating table, <laughs> so, meaning <laughs> you, you take these disparate elements and put them together. And the monogram films do that in ways that no uh, other studio was doing. Universal wasn't doing it, uh, Paramount or whatever, MGM, Warner Brothers. They, there was too much at stake. You know, but at Monogram, there was nothing was at stake, <laughs> and uh, and I think even uh, awesome. I think I think Gary uh, I can confirm this. I think Sam Katzman, who was the sort of the the head of, of or the, the the producer of these films, uh, Sam Katzman, I think, was asked, you know, who was the intended audience of these films, and he basically said, well, you know, idiots or anybody who's like willing that. to go I...
1: see them is the intended audience,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and. Oddly enough, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, it's weirdly um, contemporary uh, thinking about this because the other day Martin Scorsese was quoted um, uh, criticizing the Marvel superhero movies as saying that they're they're not cinema. And and while I understand what he means by that, um, it kind of caused a you know Twitter storm. And Robert Downey Jr. responded in his own way, and Samuel Jackson responded in his own way. And uh, while I understand what Scorsese means by that, uh, it, it started me thinking about how these these Marvel films are, are sort of similar in the sense that they're they're pop culture. They're presented at, as popcorn tentpole entertainments. But if you sort of remove yourself from your own like cultural baggage, you know we're all used to Spider Man, and we all know what the Hulk is. So you wander into these films. Not really realizing how bizarre they are, uh, and, and I was talking to a student of mine just the other day about how some of the Marvel superhero films are almost closer to like Alejandro Jodorowsky films. <laughs> if you really think about it, you know, you go in and see Avengers Infinity War, and you, you presuppose a universe in which there were no other Marvel films that ever preceded this film,
3: mm-hmm. and no
2: other Marvel film that ever followed it. It would be in fact the weirdest film ever made. Um, uh, so, so monogram. the monogram films are are kind of like that. It's hard to imagine what people were thinking when they wandered in, uh, expecting to see a Bell Lugosi horror film, and instead they see something as, as insane as The Ape Man. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you
1: about The Ape Man. That's evolved. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I have not watched The Ape Man. I've seen bits and pieces of all of them via YouTube or wherever I can find them. The Ape Man was... Was that where was that supposed to be the werewolf or or, I don't know? (laughs) It's a bizarre movie. Uh,
2: The the exact origins of it are kind of mysterious because um, it it claims that it's based on a short story. Uh, Gary, isn't it called They Creep by Night? was supposedly the short story. Yes, it was it was
3: it was based on a short story, but the short story does not seem to have actually been published you know, uh, uh, before before the uh, before the film was made or ever, but I think the ape man is part of that kind of wild uh, sensibility that that you can trace back to to long before even uh, the post story murders in the room where there's this fascination with notions of missing links and 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 what comes between ape and man was there some uh you know some kind of uh link there that's yet to be found and and what what there might be in common between men and apes i mean by the 20s everything from the scopes monkey trial where uh you know evolution is uh there's a fever pitch against it in some quarters to uh, the fact that there were experiments made in the nineteen twenties, uh, injecting you know uh, parts of monkey glands into human beings, in a belief that it might cause enhanced virility, you know. Mm. So so there's there's kinds all kinds of wonderfully weird things happening, in terms of fears of apes, wonderment, and and as well as you know a missing link between them. And the, the ape man, he kind of regresses by injecting himself uh uh he regresses to something like uh that missing link kind of character
0: I like that movie I I just like that movie I I grew up watching uh creature features with my mother she was a horror aficionado so I grew up watching the mummy and the the original mummy and the invisible man and dracula and the wolfman so I was also involved with watching very schlocky movies so all of this stuff was in my wheelhouse growing up. So when when people start bringing up like these obscure movies that you know we oh we got to watch this I've never seen this before, I'm awestruck that people haven't watched them because they're classics in my world.
2: Right. Well, the you know the um, so sometimes if you're uh, particularly if you've been exposed to these things as a kid, and I think at a certain point the the line between what is a classic sort of acknowledged. Uh, work of art uh and one of these bottom of the barrel films that that line begins to blur in your head if you 've seen if 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 you've seen enough of them and 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 were exposed to them at an early age i, I think even um who gary who was it who actually dedicated uh, one of the new wave uh French directors actually dedicated one of his films to to monogram. There, there there's some reference to to monogram in one of the i think it's it's breathless or w- w- one of those films uh they they actually they reference monogram by name and in the film i mean i mean you get the sense that that a lot of those French new wave directors were definitely paying attention to these films and that's how later on people like Val Lewton and 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 bud Bedecker and Joseph Lewis get elevated uh- late, later on in say the sixties
3: No, i I agree and i think it's interesting that On the one hand, these were made, as Robert said, so quickly, so cheaply, and they were thrown into theaters, but they never disappeared, even though most people, and certainly in today's world, wouldn't know their titles or have watched them. They never disappeared. They would keep re-releasing them into theaters during uh, the post-war period because Monogram was bought out uh, and disappeared and some of the films fell quickly into public domain they they were endlessly rebroadcast on television from the early 1950s onward and by the 1980s when home video hit there were companies that specialized in putting out companies like good times home video that specialized in putting out these public domain films there was the copyrights had lapsed anybody could throw them out on videotape and so uh You know, and of course, now they populate youtube but it's a it's a funny thing because, on the one hand, these films are themselves the kind of invisible because people don't remember their titles generally or whatever, but they are so uh consistently um playing from the time they were made in theaters to t v to home video um I think I think so many of us that watch and love old films stumble across them because of that.
1: You'd always see them showing up on, like, Saturday morning creature feature double features. Like, you'd see one of yeah. them, and then you'd see, like, Blackula. It'd be, like, the second movie. Or you'd see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and this would be the one that followed it or something like that.
3: And, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and that was the original point of them, to be... To be beat, not only B movies in the sense that for us, especially in the modern era, B equates with cheapness, and it and it generally always did. But but B in the original parlance was there were two films on a double feature, not unlike the TV uh, broadcast you're talking about, and the monogram films were of course invariably the the uh, the B movie, the second feature to round out more cheaply to round out two films you
1: know, in a row. So I got to ask, Bella's career, he he started out, like, the first time he ever played Dracula, I believe it was October 5th, uh, 1927. It was in Broadway. And then from there, he went and played, you know, his iconic role as Dracula. He became known as Dracula. And then he played, I think he played the werewolf or something like that. So he, he had a good career going into this kind of stuff, and he was known for that. So how does he go from, Doing you know these playing Broadway and doing all these things to ending up at monogram nine Or was it the other way around?
3: No, I I, I think it was that is it was that very direction because even before he did Dracula on Broadway. He had a, a career in other Broadway plays non horror He did a dating to Germany and Hungary before that, you know playing Romeo as early as 1910 for example on stage and so this long successful career There are various problems uh, that start, though, uh, in in the early 1930s that lead to a kind of gradual decline. Some of it is is his ongoing um, age where he's no longer, I mean, by the time he was doing the monogram, uh, nine, the first of them in 1941, he had been born in 1882. So uh, his days of playing a romantic lead and so forth uh, were were waning just because of his age. He made a lot of, I think, poor business decisions uh, and uh, found himself becoming more and more type not only as a horror star, but as somebody who was uh, starring in these cheapies. That's certainly true by 1941.
1: I know he played Jesus in Hungary. Have you ever seen the pictures of him when he played the role as Jesus by chance? He looked like Jesus. He really did.
3: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. He, he, he did uh, uh, on more than one occasion in, in Passion Place. Yes.
0: That's just creepy to me. That's just so creepy for some reason. <laughs> you have the Prince of Darkness <laughs> playing Christ.
3: Yeah, the Prince of Peace. Yeah.
1: To be, yes. to be fair, he the did princes. start off playing Jesus. Then it was. Then he went to Romeo and all these other things. I know when he got here, he couldn't speak English very well, if at all. So a lot of the first English roles that he got, he had to learn to speak the scripts phonetically, which is where his his trademark like accent and acting style came from. Like William Shatner's got Shatner speak. You've got Legosi speak. That. You know, it's it that's like when you see a he always kind of talks the same way because he never lost his Hungarian accent. It always he it, it always it was always there permeating. But when he learned his scripts, he had to learn them like one word phonetically at a time. So, from what I understand, there would be points where he'd be filming a movie and the only usually he really knew was the English that he was reading off of his scripts. Do I have that correct or no?
3: Well, I I think at an early point in his American career that was true. Uh, many years ago, I even interviewed the man who helped him learn the the, the first English-speaking role he ever played, uh, which was happening in 1922. Uh, but I think uh, actually by the time of the late 1920s, he had started to develop a pretty firm grasp of uh, – uh, of the English language. He may have never mastered it, uh, and, and it's so difficult always to master a second language. For him, it would have been a third language because he spoke German as also. But I, I think there's been a lot of overstatement in he didn't know what he was saying or, or phonetic and so forth. I think uh-huh. that really became less true by the late 1920s. I, I,
2: I think uh, by the time he was playing Dracula, certainly he he was as proficient with English as as one could be Uh, but it's also important when you mentioned the the Lugosi speak it's sort of important to to point out that uh, even at the time Lugosi's acting style was critiqued as being over the top or exaggerated Uh, and what's interesting is I find that in retrospect looking at these films that that over the top style actually is one of the things that helps his film's be so contemporary. Uh, In other words, what seemed out of sync with uh, popular culture or with the intelligentsia, what's considered to be good acting in the 1940s. uh, Today, we look at it and that over-the-top kind of style uh, feeds into the surreal aspects of these films and actually helps them to be uh, more contemporary in a way. I think Gary uh, Gary and I have discussed this about how the very things that were considered by critics to be defects in the monogram films are the things that make them so interesting today. Absolutely. I
1: got to laugh because the way you describe Monogram 9 and then you've got Ed Wood that comes along and Ed Wood's filming style and his shoot from the hip, like we don't have a permit, let's just run out and record this as quick as we can and get back in the van and get the hell out of here. You know, it kind of falls in many ways in with the way he was doing things over at Monogram. So when Ed Wood comes along and, you know, drags him out and says, yeah, I like you. We need to do this. Blah, blah, And finally convinces him to come back. It kind of sounds like it was something very familiar for him to jump into to be able to deal with that chaos for the most part.
3: Yes, I believe that. I think what we're saying about the Monogram 9 can also be said about the films of Ed Wood, as well as a lot of other films uh, that we could mention from the 50s, 60s, and 70s of extremely low-budget films, people like Herschel Gordon-Lewis, people like Doris Wishman, that that even as the American avant-garde experimental filmmaking people intentionally being whether it's surrealists or other approaches uh, while all of that is happening intentionally with some filmmakers who consider themselves artists so the Warhols and so forth uh, you know Stan Brakhage there there is this wonderful kind of strain everything Robert's been talking about in terms of the Monogram 9 I think you can follow that through as you're saying with Ed Wood but even some of these later filmmakers where sometimes they're lack of training in how to make films, sometimes the speed at which they had to make them all kind of leads to um, them being quite surreal, even though that wasn't generally the intention.
1: Yeah, it was like, we have this much money, this much much time, let's just swing it and do it, because they did it, so therefore we can do it.
3: Ab- absolutely. Yeah, so I've always been wanting to
2: write an article about how truly avant-garde Glen or Glenda is. I don't know how you know how um, I don't know how much this is understood, you know. But the techniques Ed Wood's using in in Glenn or Glenda are, are uh, I I think one could argue that he's intentionally uh, attempting to use what would be considered avant-garde or on the edge cinematic techniques. Now one could argue whether he's successful in doing it, but the fact that he's even attempting it. Is, is kind of remarkable at that time. The fact that he even got that film made and into theaters is a sort of incredible impossible feat. and
1: possible feat. And Bella was in that <laughs> yeah, movie. It, it, how do you get it, a guy who played the Lord of Darkness into a transgender, you know, how do you pull that off in that time period?
3: <laughs> well, uh, the, the quick answer to that is $5,000 was what he was paid <laughs> for what amounted to about a day of work. Uh, but I agree with Robert. It's, uh, it's something of a testament that the film was made, that it was distributed, and it actually, at least on the two coasts, you know, it actually uh, played more often and at more theaters than one might expect. There's a Charlie Chaplin film of the 1950s, uh, one of the later films when he was no longer playing the little tramp. It's called A King in New York. And his character goes into a theater and watches a film that is a parody of Glen or Glenda, which is a bit of a, a an indication the fact that at least in New York and California it had a bit of a uh, a bit of a reputation
2: uh, another moment of high art and low art like colliding uh,
3: yes the, yeah uh, and again but, where 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 the line is is a question you know between but, the but, two by the way.
2: I, I just remember it was it was it was Jean Luc Godard who who directly references monogram in in Breathless. Um, ah yes. Uh, but, but but Gary, didn't you know? Uh, di- didn't you tell me once that you met uh, the actor who plays the bartender in The Shining, uh, and you had a conversation with oh, him? Oh
3: yes, I, I I've known him very well for for many years. Uh, I got a wedding gift from him and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The Joseph did you tell me
2: that uh, he he made a reference about about. Uh, what Lugosi was considered to be like. Uh, in, in other words, that Lugosi was sort of like the ultimate symbol of how not
3: to act. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, I think, I think a lot of people, and certainly like in the, in, in, in the period of, of the 40s and 50s, but also into the 60s and 70s, thought that there, was a, there were two films, vampire films made in the 70s about a character called Count Yorga and Robert Quarry played the part, and I remember him talking about how, you know, Lugosi was the worst actor. I believe he put it, the worst actor on God's green earth. You know, so there were a lot of people that, that. that really took <laughs> shots at it. Yeah, there was a lot of people that took shots at Lugosi during his, his, certainly the 40s and 50s when he got into these lower budget films, but also in the decades, yeah, that followed that, that, uh, that this was a um, – well, certainly, at, at, maybe in the kindest of terms from some of them, I don't believe this, but you know, he was just a, an enormous over-actor, chewing the scenery, exaggerations of gestures, those kinds of things I think a lot of people referred to. At least in that period, I think there was starting to be a, a real turn in Lugosi's favor in the late 80s, when so much of his stuff started coming out on home video, mid to late 80s, into the 90s with Landau. and. And and so forth. Uh, I think the the uh, you know the worms turned a bit there.
2: Uh, certainly, that that's indicative of the fact that I mean one of the most you know, popular actors of the '90s and then and forward, meaning, meaning Johnny Depp, certainly is not a realistic actor. You, you know his, his tendencies are also very over the top and quite surreal as well mm-hmm. uh so it's, it's interesting like e- e- even the, the way that johnny depp uh acts in some of his roles would have been considered equally um strange or over the top um i, I, I thought it's, it's ironic that robert query of all people would be the one to say that um uh <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> see i think I, I, yeah way, i, A I lot lot of like... in count yorga that uh that count yorga's castle is like just like right off the 405
3: <laughs> oh right, 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 right. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is.
2: I think with
1: with Lugosi though, like when you go back and watch Dracula, it's not that his acting was over t- bad, right? Like that there's the, the way that those movies were shot and things. The, if they were to take. A modern modern directing techniques and modern the way f- films are shot modern now it's like you say with Johnny Depp Johnny Depp's over the over the top and does all of his characters and so forth but those movies are made around his acting style and back when these movies were being made like Dracula great example they really weren't making that movie around the way Bella Lugosi was acting for the most part they the, the filming of it's oh. kind of weird and stuff so if they were to go well. back and reshoot them and redirect them you know with with better I don't know. I don't want to say cinematography, but if they if they were able to put their be- together, together better, I think it would have been quite much a different thing.
2: Uh, I, I think actually you could argue that the monogram films, however, were being built around him. And fact, I think uh, Gary, when you interviewed uh, Gerald Schnitzer, didn't he say when he wrote Bowery at Midnight that the that the screenplay came from imagining try, trying to put Lugosi into a context that would be unfamiliar. Uh, a different you know uh, a power uh,
3: yeah, pack absolutely, track. absolutely, that Owen Bowery at midnight he'll be basically a gangster. And he'll be in situations, including he plays, uh, 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 along with being a gangster, he plays a, a university professor as kind of a daytime cover for his activities. And those kinds of situations, obviously very different than most of the horror films he had done before. So Schnitzer was trying to do, I remember the Cohen brothers said, you know, that they were, when they made uh, Mil- uh, Miller's Crossing, you know, that, uh, oh, let, let's get gangsters out into the woods because people haven't seen that before. That was kind of along the lines of what Schnitzer was thinking. When he wrote Bowery at Midnight, because he did write it, he was told, "Come up with a story for uh, Lugosi, and you've got the weekend mm-hmm. to write it." And he's got the weekend to write it, and he was up all night on the typewriter, and he had a, uh, a wife and a young child at the time. You know, the baby crying, and then and, you know, forty-eight hours later, there is this film that uh, uh, that's that's actually uh, quite a favorite of a lot of horror and certainly Lugosi fans. Uh,
2: certainly, uh, Mike Kopner, the uh, editor of the the former editor of Cult Movies magazine, uh, is, is that not his favorite Legosi film?
3: It, it is indeed. It is indeed. And I seem to recall that one time, like uh, thirty or more years ago, uh, probably thirty-five or more, that there was somebody on uh, David Letterman who uh, recited every word from the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, every every bit of the dialogue, and they, they because because it was an hour or whatever of do, you know talking, they would cut back and forth to him, as 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 that fellow was had the entire film you know memorized. Uh, so, uh, but 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 it is but it is it, it, these films. I think they do have this kind of uh, fascinating kind of longer. Life than anybody ever thought. I mean, I remember when I was at Musso and Frank's with uh, Jerry Schnitzer, we became good friends, and I had an original press book for Bowery at Midnight, and I said, oh, would you mind signing this? And he went on to do much more prestigious kind of work. And he certainly signed it. He was an extremely wonderful guy, but but I could tell there was this feeling of like, why is somebody bringing this from my past? Up? Not, <laughs> not not the you know not the things I did later. The, 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 I wrote this in a weekend, you know. How, you know, so so I think that there were, some of the people involved in them. I think I, I I met many people that worked on those films and you know acted in them or whatever, and I think they were all surprised that. That these things didn't disappear after being in theaters for a week or two, and and forever forgotten, you know, that that, instead, that they uh, developed kind of a cult status. Certainly by the by the eighties, I think.
2: It's also uh, particularly with Bowery at Midnight, and really with all of them. This is a point that we that we make in the book that all of these monogram films are very much what we would call a slipstream. Stories, in in other words, stories that that kind of casually cross genre boundaries. Uh, and so, uh, in a way that the major studios just were not doing. And and so in Bowery at Midnight, you've got a movie that starts out as a gangster film. Turns into uh, a horror film. Turns into a zombie film. Turns into a, a romance. It's, 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 there's social commentary going on in there. The the main character that that Lugosi is playing is oh, like a proto Walter White character, uh, college professor who's has this cover of being a social worker and helping the homeless, but he's actually just using that as a cover to sell drugs and 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 he's got this mm-hmm. sub sub basement where uh, all. all that his victims go, and then meanwhile, his uh, his um, this weird uh, doctor Feelgood that's working for him is uh, rejuvenating uh, his victims, uh, it, unbeknownst to Lugosi, and uh, creating these odd proto zombies. And so the the films would very much uh, shuttle back and forth uh, between genres, very at, at, at a breakneck speed. Uh, Black dragons, which is the first uh, uh, fil- American film to reference Pearl Harbor and it came out not long after it. Uh, you could, it's only like, 61 minutes long, maybe. Uh, it, within that one hour, it shuttles back and forth between being a war movie, an espionage film, a, a strange kind of Phil Dickian science fiction. Um, the, the, they're very, very strange, and Black Dragons might be one of the most peculiar. And, and an, an important film, just historically, because it is the first that that came out right after Pearl Harbor. I, I think they probably made it, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor that someone started writing it. Wow.
3: <laughs>
1: it's funny you should bring up Philip K. Dick, because the whole time you're describing these movies and how they're made and stuff, I keep thinking back to Philip K. Dick being this meth-addled writer who's constantly <laughs> writing as fast as he can to get his work out there. And it feels like a lot of these movies that, that it's got those feel to it. It's like, all right, well, we need to make this movie right now. So go home and get really high and write a movie, you know, or something like that. They they, they seem to have this, this kind of, this, this like, okay, this is something that somebody who's really high or strung out would come up with to try to get a movie together as fast as they can and put it out there. So when you mention that, I keep going back to Philip K. Dick. I can just see Philip K. Dick sitting there writing, writing this stuff out.
2: Well, if if Gerald Schuster, uh was not um, um, imbibing or, or or helping his productivity with uh, any kind of artificial uh, stimulant, uh, nonetheless, being up for forty eight hours straight will do something to your consciousness. And so <laughs> he, <laughs> oh, yeah. he, he was right in that yeah, yeah. forty eight hours straight. You know, I mean, we're talking about a screenplay that had to have been over sixty pages long, right? Um, uh, yes,
3: yes, but but I also love the fact that you, Roberts brought up you know that these films generally hovered just over one hour in length, and one of the other things Schnitzer told me because I asked him, like in Bowery at midnight, that he wrote in that weekend, it immediately starts with somebody breaking out of jail there's no introduction of characters there's no no kind of slower start that most Hollywood films of the period had, and what intrigued me about the kinds of films like the monogram nine films like bowery at midnight i would ask him you know you, your film in some ways seems so modern because you immediately the monogram films and here the ones he wrote immediately uh start with kind of a hook action scene sometimes in the way modern hollywood blockbusters would do you know and uh, and he attributed it to the fact that you know these films had to be short that was part of keeping the budgets down and so there was no time for any you know, opening exposition or a lot of those things. We've mentioned the ape man and a mad scientist film in which the the, the mad scientist happened before the film even starts. I mean, Lugosi's already the ape man. He doesn't turn into the ape man. And and part of that is just this rather incredible, by Hollywood standards of the time, the kind of the incredible speed. These are very, in many cases, lean, I think, narratives, you know.
2: That, that that's see, a great no. point. I mean, I mean, the the Wolfman leads up to the moment where you get the payoff, where you're going to see Lon Chaney turn into the Wolfman. Like that's the orgasmic moment you're waiting for. <laughs> Eight Man, it's, He's it's already so there. casual. It's, it's already happened. It is it like it's just like you know, it's just some something that happens every day. Oh yeah, you know, he he turned into an ape, you know. Uh something that you just mentioned that's happened off screen in the first few minutes of the film. Uh and, and the Bowery at Midnight and Black Dragons, they have a kind of um I, I think Gary you've mentioned this to, to Schnitzer, it's almost closer to the way uh, an episode of C S I it is structured, and yet this film was made in the 40s. You know, with 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 the murder every you know 10 minutes, and and the way it it opens in medias res, uh, particularly. And by the way, an interesting footnote with Bowery at Midnight. It begins with a jailbreak, and the actors are actually climbing over the wall of what was actually the front wall of monogram studios and that that building uh, still exists to this day and until recently was owned by kct who sold the building to the church of scientology so the prison that that these guys are breaking out of in the first few minutes of bowery at midnight are, are, is now owned by the church of scientology which is just a, a wonderfully weird footnote so it is in. again a prison
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: Exactly. Yes, exactly right.
1: So I got to ask, I believe that it was Robert that had made mention to me in a message that Lugosi was was very constantly under surveillance from the FBI and OSS. What's the backstory with all of that?
3: Well, uh, the the uh, quickest version is that while he was in Hungary uh, as a young actor, he got involved in unions and the unionization of actors that ends up leading him uh, philosophically, professionally, to be involved in a very short-lived uh, communist government in Hungary right after World War I ended. We're talking 1919. He becomes something along the lines of a cabinet secretary, but one charged with the arts, the theater especially, particularly, but some some film involvement too. And that government, uh, disintegrates within uh within months and Lugosi literally had to flee uh for his life uh, be, uh to uh, Vienna then Germany then to America so he was very much a communist party member Could be involved in a communist government. Now that's 1919, but when he comes to America, uh, he first acts in Hungarian language plays in New York. There's a major Hungarian community there. There are others uh, uh, in uh, Los Angeles as he makes the move to Hollywood eventually. There are people that remember his involvement in that government and uh, tell for example, Immigration and Naturalization Services about it. This is the 1920s during the first uh, Red Scare, you know, that leads to things like Sacco and Vanzetti and everything. Anyway, flashing forward, Lugosi basically tries to keep that a lid on his past there. Uh, he's a member of the Democratic Party. He does become involved in the formation of the Screen Actors Guild. By the time of World War II, though, He becomes the honorary kind of a figurehead president of an organization, a Hungarian-American organization, the Hungarian-American Council for Democracy it was called. The OSS started watching him reading his mail – and so forth, because the it was very much a communist uh, organization. Even if Lugosi was not fully aware of that he wasn't doing it day to day, you know, it was he was more of a figurehead president of it. But uh, the OSS is watching it enough that there is piles of documents I've gone through in the National Archives, and uh, they called it the Dracula Council uh, <laughs> because of his involvement, and uh, they so they watched him. They watched him very closely the fbi files i've gone through come after the war and in the kind of lead up to the kind of the mccarthy era and blacklisting of actors and so forth now lugosi was never actually blacklisted but there is uh there, there are various items where fbi uh, agents had, were keeping a bit of tabs on him there's one memo from j edgar hoover inquiring uh, of, of of a field office, uh, you know, should we revoke this guy's citizenship, meaning Lugosi, because of his ties not only to this quote Dracula Council, but to ongoing rumors about his activities in Hungary, and uh, the FBI file continues uh, into the fifties. In 1954, Lugosi was trying to obtain some medicine from a doctor in Las Vegas, and the doctor reported. Uh, that fact to an FBI field office who made notes and reported the same to uh to washington d c so there was very much uh surveillance of him, no doubt about it
1: so how long did that last for or did they i mean you you said you 've read the files correct Did they find anything interesting about him or was it just you know did, <laughs> was it just justs well,
3: the, the, the well uh, he the interesting thing is i think he was he probably lived his life without knowing. The bulk of what I've just said, mm-hmm. you know the o s s did not inform people when they were surveilling them, of course they you know were opening the mail and so forth're watching you <laughs> so they, they 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 didn't say that, so I don't think he was aware of 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 probably the bulk of the things we're talking about but the 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 o s the o s s was certainly watching him uh the last couple of years of the war. And more heavily than the FBI did later, if the size of the files, as any surviving files, as any indication, uh, what there is in the files is what we sadly expect to see. I think in in these types of files, and that is, they were often going around to people, interviewing them about Lugosi. Often people who had grievances with him, some of them even dating to Hungary, other Hungarians who had immigrated to America. And uh so you get what you find in, in you know in raw FBI files uh and, and the OSS where you get a lot of people slamming him without him knowing they were slamming him to the government uh agencies. Or, or a chance to respond or, or disprove some of the uh, at times outlandish things that were being uh, claimed.
2: Well, but by the way, just, just as a, an ironic uh, footnote to that, I, I just find it interesting that uh, there, there's a wonderful book uh, by James and Suzanne Poole called "Who Financed Hitler." Uh, so I just, I find it ironic. Maybe this is a link to contemporary times, is that they were spending all this time spying on Lugosi, who's mainly as a figure, uh, you know, as the head of this, quote, Dracula Council, was basically going around making lectures uh, urging Hungary to fight fascism and to join the Allies. Meanwhile, there were American industrialists like Henry Ford who were overtly in support of Hitler, and apparently the FBI and the OSS didn't care that much about them, but they were spending their time spying on Lugosi. I I just, I I find that... um, ironic and and maybe a, a mirror of uh, certain activities going on today as well <laughs> it
0: seems right yeah. on script <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. pretty much yeah <laughs>
1: um do either one of you know about the whole fantasia thing about him being used as a um, a live a, a live action model for the demon in fantasia Have you either either one of you ever heard about that
2: Sure. Uh, I think the sure. uh, son actually has the uh, paperwork uh, proving that he actually went to Disney and and um, uh, basically performed uh, that role so that they could draw over him. Is is that not the case, Gary?
3: Yeah, basically so. I mean, the, he he was Chernobog. there, and there was an ana- there was yeah Chernobyl there, there was a. Uh, one of the animators uh there bill tightler later wrote about it that lugosi came in and they filmed him um uh, you know doing some of the cape swirling techniques and everything that he would do in films and especially on stage as dracula over the years because there were various revivals you know uh, at any rate uh, that they filmed him and the idea was that maybe some of his motions and this was apparently disney's Walt Disney's own idea, you know, that, that maybe some of his motions and everything could be kind of emulated in the in the animation. Now, Title also said they really didn't weren't able to uh, to use much of it, but there there is uh, just in the past couple of years, a photograph has emerged from him at uh, at uh, Disney's um, uh, studio, you know, there for exactly what you're asking about.
2: See, and that's what he would do I because. Oh well that's yeah that's the the brilliant uh <laughs> that that's the one of the most brilliant sequences Disney ever did of course is night on yep. bald mountain but that that's something I think even when they did peter Pan i think I believe it was the child actor Bobby Driscoll who actually portrayed Peter Pan and they would they was essentially draw over him uh i believe so <laughs> so that was it was, in other words, it wasn't unique with Lugosi. they often brought in actors to do exactly that
1: but they never credit him for what he did. It was just, you know, that was it. Boom, moving on, you know.
2: Right, right. Well, so like was it like a typical Gary, was, Disney was, thing. was it just um was it just one day that he came in to do that?
3: Uh, uh to my knowledge, yes. To my knowledge, yes.
2: Oh, oh, by the way, Gary, I want to ask you a question. When you did the FBI uh files on how many pages did you get from
3: the FBI? uh the f b i files were probably something like uh thirty to forty pages uh whereas the o s s stuff was just stacks and stacks i've got there oh, you wow. know
2: oh, uh, fascinating. yeah yeah. By the way, I've I've had uh, interesting experiences with FOIA over the years, and I, I just want to note that uh, before I met Gary, I also did a FOIA request on Lagosi through the FBI, and so Gary got 30 to 40 pages. They only sent me two.
3: Wow. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, but that's always a bizarre thing, isn't it? Because, uh, there are FBI files on so many actors, film directors, and so forth of that period. And, uh, I, I've heard similar stories that sometimes people get several hundred pages literally, uh, and other people, you know, uh, when they make the request, they don't for whatever reason, right. sloppiness or, or files that are thrown out, lost, stolen, who knows?
2: Yeah.
1: So I got to ask, The Corpse Vanishes, um, what's the deal behind that one?
3: Well, well I did interview, when I, when I would speak with Jerry Schnitzer, who co-wrote it, uh, he had said that the idea came from uh, the big producer that, of those films, Sam Katzman, that Katzman remembered in the news, a, had a, a years earlier, reading that uh, a bride had been kidnapped, And he thought two things. One, okay, that'll make a great story. But secondly, at that point, so many men are going to war, he was thinking, how can we make Lugosi films that will appeal more to women? Because maybe we need to concentrate on female viewers in the audience during the war. Uh, And so a, a film in which you'd see a lot of people in bridal fashions and weddings and so forth, he thought would be of interest to the, the growing number of women or the growing dependency on women in the audience. So, that's where that one came from.
1: Hmm. All right, well, we've had you guys on here for uh, well, just about an hour now for the most part. I can't think of too much more to ask you about. Um, This is the chance where I give everybody to, you know, pimp out whatever they want to put out there where people can find your work. If you guys either have other stuff out there, websites or something like that. So if you want to go ahead and promote anything or talk about whatever, whichever one of you guys wants to go first, go right
0: ahead.
2: Uh, well, of course, the uh, Bell and the Monogram Nine is available uh, uh, by um, me and Gary uh, is available through Bear Manor, the, the publisher, but also through Amazon. So uh, definitely get that. Uh, uh, also, uh, just pr- pr- promoting uh, Gary for a moment. Gary's done wonderful audio commentaries on recent Blu-ray editions of Lugosi's films, including uh, Return of the Vampire and uh, The Raven. And our uh, uh, "Murders in the Rue Morgue" is not quite out yet, right, Gary? Right, forthcoming,
3: uh, December. Fourth forthcoming.
2: Yeah, but but the Raven is out, and they can get that through Amazon, right? And Return of the Vampire, and your commentary on White Zombie is available as well. Yes.
3: Yes, I'm uh, very kind of you to mention. I've got I've done about 20 books on different aspects of film film history. Um, probably half uh, on horror and Lugosi that kind of thing so all of those are you know,
1: we will be bugging you again, sir. Amazon. <laughs> we will be bugging you again. I love it. I love it.
3: I love it. The, the, my, the one book I will pitch is, is called, uh, the birth of the American horror film, uh, which is yep. one of my favorites. So there you go.
1: Yes. You'll be hearing from us he, again. Very Robert, soon. Of course. Uh,
3: Robert, of course, is one of my favorite, uh, Robert Guffey is one of my favorite American fiction writers. Uh, and, uh, he, he needs to, uh, to, to to pitch his uh, novels and short stories because he is a rather uh, amazing fiction writer.
1: I have Spies I, and Saucers I, I, sitting right next to me here and I have an autographed copy of it.
2: Oh, so good. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, which which includes a story called "The Fallen Nun" that in fact uh, my references favorite one. the Devil Bat, uh, <laughs> the Lugosi uh, PRC film um, uh, that came out in 1940, right before the Monogram cycle uh, started. But also, I would recommend uh, "Until the Last Dog Dies," uh, which was my uh, my novel. "Until the Last Dog Dies" came out in 2017, which is all about a, a humor virus. That goes pandemic around the globe, and it doesn't kill you, but it just kills your sense of humor. And so, it's told from the point of view of a stand-up comedian in Los Angeles who has to the book. He comes down with the virus as well. So, it's very much a, a parable of our times.
1: You have a fantastic website too called uh, Cryptoscatology, which is basically the study of secret shit. And I love that site. <laughs> um, I've heard you on a great number of other podcasts talking about a large range of really fascinating and interesting stuff. Um, What's the website on that one again?
2: Cryptoschatology.com. Cryptoschatology, Cryptoschatology that's the name of my first book, Cryptoschatology, Conspiracy Theory is Art Form. Uh, That came out in 2012. And cryptoschatology is a word I made up. Crypto is Latin for secret. Schatology is the study of shit. So you put it together and it's the study (laughs) of secret shit. That's my, my, if, if they gave out PhDs in that, that would be the PhD that I would have.
1: That needs to be a word that is put into the, how they, every year they put a new word into the dictionary, that needs to be put in there. That's It's uh, that, the, a great way of looking at it.
2: <laughs> the, the Oxford English Dictionary should definitely include psychology in the next edition.
1: I really, You're really here. wish that I had come up with that name for this podcast.
2: <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
0: That's
1: awesome. But uh, yeah, thank you guys very much for coming on the show. It's It's been a blast talking to you about um, parts of Bo Lugosi's life that really don't get talked about very much. Everybody usually goes right towards the whole vampire thing uh, or the Ed Wood thing and stuff like that. But they don't really cover. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff like the FBI files and things like that that you generally don't hear people talk about a whole lot. So it's been well, fun having you guys way- on here.
2: Uh, just, just one note, if you're, if you're curious and want to know more about the OSS and the FBI uh, and their surveillance of Lugosi, get Gary's book that he wrote with Bill Kaffenberger. It's terrific. It's called Bell Lugosi in person, also published by uh, Bear Manor, and it has a whole lengthy chapter on that sequence of uh, Lugosi's life.
3: Cool. Thanks so much for mentioning that, Robert. We, uh, we even reproduced some of the actual pages you know, from the yeah. files too, so thanks for yeah. mentioning that very much
2: it's extremely well researched and it's a it's a very the, the whole book is very riveting it's a great read
1: well I'm gonna thanks, let you guys go very much. thank you both for coming on here and talking about this has been a blast I'm really glad that I had you guys on here to talk about this stuff because you're very knowledgeable and this has been a lot of fun and probably one of the easiest interviews I've done in quite some time so yeah. um, thank so you both for coming easy. on the show I really uh, ha-
3: appreciate it thanks so very kindly
2: uh, happy Halloween and uh, happy birthday uh, Bell Lugosi mm-hmm.
1: All right, so we managed to pull the interview off without a glitch. So I've actually already listened to it. It sounds pretty well, because we're recording this the next day after we did the interview. Uh, that there was, goes uh, all the magic. You yeah, so no that up. Everything's going to fry now. The whole, the whole system's <clears throat> going to fry out.
0: <clears throat> Sorry,
1: folks. The show never happened. Uh, you know, because of the curse of the show, which still is in effect, I, have, I, I still can't go online and talk about the shows we're going to do beforehand, nope. because... We're still worried though we haven't had a major huge glitch in a long time. It's been No, it's, why, why why? Why? Why am I why am I, say that?
0: why am I tempting why fate? Why am I tempting that. <laughs> God damn it,
1: Ro. <laughs> So, so I have a cold sore. So we're going to finish this conversation. Herpes. So herpes! I have a cold sore. I get this like once or twice a year and you were telling me that a cold sores are a form of herpes or they are herpes? Yeah. Okay. So I said, well, if it's herpes, then how come I'm not getting this anywhere else on
0: my body, i.e. It's like my penis? Kind. It's not. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, it's not that. It's not that strain. <laughs> I love how oh, you're struggling God. to
1: explain this okay. right now. <laughs> it's,
0: it's not that strain of herpes. It is herpes, but it's not that. It's called oral herpes. Mm-hmm and it's not genital herpes. Okay. So, so if I
1: were to theoretically go and kiss a toilet seat and then someone were to sit on that toilet why seat... Why would you kiss
0: <laughs> a toilet seat? I'm just saying, in theory, if I were to do that... No, it's not the same... Okay. You can't kiss or lick or make out with a toilet seat and then spread, spread that kind of herpes onto a person's genitals. No matter genital how herpes, bad the toilet
1: seat wants it to happen.
0: You may get, you may get genital herpes from the <laughs> toilet seat by licking it but typically it's not yeah it's not it's not a thing just don't share your drinks or kiss anybody when you're in an outbreak
1: i got that yeah now now i feel like i've got this now i feel like i've got a genital disease didn't you send me one of these plushies that i have sitting here isn't one of these herpes yes
0: i sent you herpes yeah
1: you sent me a swine flu and a herpes plushie which are still attached to my microphone stand right now yes i can't remember which one the pink one was of all the weird think, shit you send me for I think one I think
0: is, uh, was swine flu. and okay, so the one that
1: looks like the egg is the herpes virus.
0: Yeah, that's herpes, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> great. So everybody listening to the show right now is getting a fantastic earful. All right, we have um... a... <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe you should put a condom over your head. Oh, my God. Well, it doesn't happen all the time. Like once or twice a year, I get a cold sore. And it's usually either after I'm really stressed or after I've just gotten done having a cold or something like that, which I've just got done having a ma- a big major
0: cold. Uh-oh. So, and it sucks. There's some so- bad news for you. What's that? There's mounting evidence that herpes leads to Alzheimer's. It's been nice knowing me. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. <laughs> but it's not the same kind of herpes, right? It's
1: cold sores no, aren't the same no. kind as that. So uh, that doesn't mean if I've got a cold sore that I'm going to forget who I'm talking to.
0: It's her- herpes simplex one is what cold sores is. And there's nothing you can, to, 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 no. well, you can do to get to. Well, you could take Valtrex to make it go away faster. But I mean, that just makes it go away faster. But then going to be
1: that awkward moment when I go up to get Valtrex from my pharmacist and they're going to be like, oh, there's the dude with herpes. And it's going to be like, no, uh, I just got a cold sore.
0: Okay, first of all, if you're being judged by your pharmacist, you need to find a better fucking pharmacist. <laughs> Because they see some really rotten stuff. Like I have dick rock. Can you give me something for it? I mean, God, dude, you need to find a new pharmacist. Oh my God! They sell stuff that you can get that's over the counter that does the I've same thing. I know. I got some of It's a little dab. You put oh, it do it, it you? Like... You didn't have any problem walking in there? No, you walk buy it up off to the yourself. counter and go. Yeah, you buy yeah, it off the shelf you and you can
1: walk the through the self center. checkout scan, which is oh, what I do I when I have my this. packages of condoms, my miracle whip. And anyways, um Wait a minute. Why are you
0: Oh my god.
1: Oh my god. It doesn't matter. I'm usually wearing a nun costume at the time anyway, so nobody judges me. I don't but...
0: even use... oh, <laughs> I just just broke something. <laughs> I don't even want to respond to that
1: okay we're, anyway we're, we're done being total jackasses all right spiraling
0: so, i'm spiraling i'm spiraling
1: <laughs> you got you got the voicemails loaded up
0: or the voicemail? I, I have
1: one okay tell me when you're pressing play we got to listen to this
0: uh right now listen this is and serious is. okay
3: Rojan, we all love you but i think i speak for everyone when i say Lobo, we missed you on the
0: show. Come back. It's just not the same. Who?
1: I, I don't know. I, 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 I think people. Who is this? I, I think it's Gwendolyn. I'm not 100% positive. I talked to Gwen. Yeah. Um. I think it's Gwen. I'm not 100% positive. It sounds me. sounds like
0: her. What's that? Is that like Stockholm Syndrome? Because that's got to be Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs>
1: no. I think
0: people it's are gotta, under the impression. It's got to be Stockholm Syndrome.
1: Anytime you take some kind of a leave of absence or something happens, the the messages of did you kick Lobo off the show or did Lobo leave the show instantaneously flood in? That's why when you left Facebook, you had to come back, I think, because everybody thought that you were
0: off the show or something along those lines. Oh, my lines. God, yeah. Like, I started getting, like, texts and phone calls From people I know, I Mm -hmm. I heard you were kicked off the show. I'm like, uh, no, because you you were bugging me. You were bugging me about that. And I'm like, uh, no,
1: no, that's, that's not a thing that I know of. Here's the deal. Sometimes Lobo is going to take a break because he has a wife and three kids who, who are beautifully wonderful kids, but at times they can be monsters. And then you have a job. And see, that's the difference. Like, I can't, like, leave the show. If I if I need to take a break, there's no show because certain mm. people won't record a show in my absence, which is nope. what the whole thing was about, about you. You needed to record another Spark episode because people would like to hear more Spark episodes, uh-huh. and that doesn't seem to want to be a thing with you. You have somebody out there who would like to record a Spark episode with you.
0: I know a lot of people that would like to. It's not so, a matter of... Whether I want to, it's I don't want to. Wait, what? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> exactly the <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> point. So no, I look between my job, my schedule, my three children in dance and soccer, and herpes. Having to take care of an almost—I don't have herpes. After having almost, Excuse you, don't make out with toilet uh, she's almost eighty-nine years old. Lives up the street from me that I have to yeah, tend you're to.
1: Over it. Go ahead. What? Nothing. Go ahead.
0: Ugh. I no, have. Listen, I, responsibilities i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry See, the, part, the part that people don't understand is much like rorschach you guys i'm not stuck in here with you you fuckers are stuck with me
1: <laughs> and someday the world will at you works. and say, save
0: us and you will say no herpes <laughs> no <laughs> uh, i wonder if he had herpes and if it would show up on the mask
1: Ooh, but, like oh, as a R- hot spot. rorschach
0: have you watched? It would the probably new, stick.
1: I think the new season, uh, the the Watchmen or after the Watchmen, starts this week on HBO or something like that. Is that this week?
0: I'm I, not sure. Uh, I think so. I can't bring myself to watch it.
1: I'm probably going to pirate it and torrent it. I will put that out there right now. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. Go ahead. I'm probably going to watch it that that's way and funny. see what it's like um, before I get it. Because I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm one of those people that's like waiting for Disney Plus to hit. and I'm going to subscribe to that. So.
0: The only other show that I, watch. I have, I just paid for. I got a early, what was it early sign on for, for Disney, Disney Plus? Plus? Yeah, it's sixty nine dollars for the whole year. Ooh, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. have to do that because um, uh, yeah, get it quick because it starts streaming uh, November twelfth.
1: I thought it was fifteenth. I guess it is twelfth. And oh, you maybe can't it's... you can't watch anything on it right now though, right? You got so you got the no, sign on bonus the yet. You can't yep. watch it. Okay, that's why you got the early sign-on bonus, because it paid, you paid 69 bucks and you got a cheaper price because you got the earlier one. Okay, I understand.
0: Yeah, for the year. I'm sorry. The only sorry. thing I'm worried about is it's just bundled with Hulu, and I already have Hulu, so am I going to get some kind of money back, or? Uh, I don't know. See, I've got Sling. I'll figure it out. I only want it for Mandal- The Mandalorian. That's the only yeah, thing I, I, I want that for. Yeah. I mean, not that I won't watch all the Marvel stuff, but yeah, I want to watch them. I'm more excited over that than The Last Skywalker.
1: That the, the, the oh we're going into dangerous territory here. <laughs> Why? Well, ne, neither me nor you really enjoyed the last couple of Star Wars movies. Uh, no, I
0: I didn't hate
1: them. Why? Well, I, I didn't mind Solo. Them. Everybody was. Oh, how the hell did we get into this topic? We went from herpes straight into this. Are <sighs> they that much different? Anyways, Gwendolyn, we love you. But um, yeah, Lobo's not yes. leaving the show. So oh well. Did you um did you see um Rogue One? Yeah. Did you like Rogue One? Uh, it was good. As okay. a standalone film, it was good. Yeah, did absolutely. Did you see Solo? Yes. Did you like Solo? Again, I did. See, that's As the a thing. Me and you film. are different. Yeah. Like Me and you really liked those movies and everybody else hated them. But I've see, discovered think... that the people that really liked the Star Wars movies and didn't like the other ones, and you got the people that liked the other movies, but really did not like the new Star Wars movies.
0: I liked all of them. The only one I didn't like was was uh, the first three. Oh, the original oh, the episodes one, two, and three? Yeah. yeah. I mean I didn't hate them but I did wasn't a huge fan. See, yeah. the problem I find with Star Wars people are is there's two different kinds of Star Wars fans. There's people that love Star Wars no matter what and then there's those that listen to what the critics say before the movie comes out and then they have a jaded view of the film. See, I don't do that. I didn't I
1: just No, didn't, neither do I. I just didn't like the last two. I didn't like the last two Star Wars movies. I'm going to see anything with Star Wars on it, I'm going to go and spend my money on. Because that's what I do. I have no penis, and apparently I have herpes. So whenever what? Star Trek and Star Wars comes out, I'm gonna go spend my money on the sci-fi stuff. I'm bummed because I can't see the New Joker movie, even though I didn't want to see it initially. But that's just the way you can't that I am. See it? Can't I've got you no one to go see it with. So go by
0: yourself. No, I'm not
1: gonna do that. Then I'm gonna let the pussy. fat bald guy with a with a beard on his face. I go and to has the movies by myself. Movie.
0: Well, stop shoving popcorn into your herpes hole and you will have a problem. <laughs> We're we're gonna
1: milk this for all it's worth.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. This is what's called um, a line gag, folks.
1: <laughs> where are we at on the schedule here for shows? Uh okay, so next week we've got well, we won't say who we've got coming on, but you're not going to be here because you're gonna have a house full of screaming teenage girls. So yep. uh I do think I've got the co host situation covered. I'm waiting to hear back on a couple of things. Um,
0: Good. If Don't all goes, who it well. is because it'll go haywire.
1: I want to. I mean, you know, they've paid their dues at this point, but we're going to see. Doesn't matter. Yes, exactly. Well, actually, things <laughs> you may just go said haywire. we haven't had any problems. Things may go haywire in that situation right now. So it's probably best that we don't talk about the potential the COVID hits. coming onto the show. <laughs> and then after that, we're that that's going to be the show. That'll be the show right before Halloween. Yep. The weekend of November 2nd, I may not be here. So there may not be an episode November 2nd. Because Halloween's on the 31st. That's a Thursday. I'm off. I'm going to finally go hang out with Danny Kish this year. I'm going to pick him up and take him out to Lisa's. Um, They're going to be trick-or-treating, and we're going to be brewing beer and doing all kinds of other shit. Go figure. But anyways.
0: Yay! So
1: it's looking like the second we may not have a show. And then after that, we go into November, which is, that's the beginning of the Christmas season, which is, you know, horrid and detestable because that will be Christmas the end of Halloween.
0: Season. Oh, we so. haven't even had turkey yet. Chill
1: the fuck out. Okay, I do. I am a fan of the turkey. I am a fan yep. of turkey. Side story. Okay, we'll do one more side story, which has nothing to do with paranormal or anything at all. There's Are there th- herpes involved? No, there won't be herpes involved unless there will be. I make herpes involved. So there's mm. this thing. Me and you have talked about it. It's the Michigan's largest yard sale, and it goes from uh, one yeah, side of the yeah, state yeah. to the other one well every year me and the wife and i'll bring we'll bring lisa along lisa as many people know is more or less my sister um Mm -hmm. we're joined at the hip whatever so me and her and the wife we all hit this yard sale thing goes all the way across michigan we hit about half of it in one day so this year we stop at a yard sale and we're to a point now where once we get out of the vehicle like everybody along this route has yard sales so you're like going from one to the other to the other you're going constantly so we've gotten so competitive with our full contact yard sailing that we'll get out of the vehicle quickly look up at the yard even before we get into the yard we're like perusing the sale to see is there anything there that i want is there anything there that i want so like me and lisa are doing that. waves Yeah, that's what we're doing. So the wife's kind of looking for her stuff, but me and Lisa are like actively, competitively trying to kill each other to get out of the vehicle, get to the tables, and find the shit that we want before the other person does. So this last year, we pull up in front of a house and we're like, we're like just about salivating, licking the windows, which may be why I have herpes. And like, door opens, we both go running out. I don't even want to know what you're driving in. And you've seen what I drive. So I go run. we go run the yard and last year- How did he get herpes? This last summer, there was a brand new in the box box indoor turkey deep fryer and i've wanted one of these Mm. things for years i'm one of those idiots that like has no kitchen counter space but wants every fucking gadget in the world regardless if i'm going to use it or not same i tend to be a low-carb person i want a panini sandwich maker i don't even eat bread anymore i just want the panini sandwich maker i don't know maybe someone will piss me off and i'll shove their hand in it and i'll put the little grill marks on their hand i don't know i still want it do i need it no i don't i want the coffee espresso machine i don't need it i have a keurig i would have 12 different keurigs if i had the room to put them on my counter. Kurgs make a great bedside uh, <laughs> thing, by the way, if you're like, you could be in the middle of having sex and just reach over and make coffee. Continuing on. So we get out of the vehicle with you, run up the driveway and we both see the turkey thing. And at the same time, we're like, mine! And it's like, but it came out because we were in movie mode. It came out in slow motion. So we're like, mine! And then we're both running up the driveway to get it. And since we're both large people, it looks like the running of the bulls. As we're running up the driveway to try to get the brand new, still in the box, turkey deep fryer for $7. So she runs up Seven and she's plus. like, wow. she like suplexes me, like and throws me on the ground. She's like, this is mine, bitch. And she grabs it and runs up and pays for it. And the woman <laughs> looks at us and she's like, are you two brother and sister or married or something like that? My wife's just sitting there rolling her eyes. So... Lisa's paying for the turkey deep fryer. The wife's rolling her eyes at both of us. The woman's laughing. I'm still in slow-mo trying to grab the turkey fryer. I'm still in mo more... and like the turkey <laughs> at this point they've paid for the turkey deep fryer. They're heading back to the vehicle. And I'm pissed off because I really wanted this turkey deep fryer. Totally putting aside the fact that if I called her and said, hey, uh, Elise, hey, can I borrow the turkey deep fryer? She'd be like, yeah, sure. Go for it, bro. No problem. Just take it. But no, I have to own the turkey deep fryer just because I need to have the most kitchen toys and die from herpes in the end with having the most kitchen toys.
0: There it is again.
1: That's the story, folks. So I don't even know how the hell we got onto this story. But yeah, that's what we do. So don't either. that's pretty much what yard sailing is like with between me, Lisa, and my wife. We just kind of go out and beat the shit out of one another when we go up to garage sales to try to get the item that we want as we're going on this epic journey every second weekend of August, which is usually why we don't have a show that weekend. So that's the yeah, story, right. folks. This Long is real... story.
0: <laughs> wow. Cool story, Dude. bro. Cool story, bro. <laughs> Needs more dragons.
1: <sighs> Girl, go make me a sandwich. In the Panini Maker. Panini! <laughs> I do man, I've got all these damn like like I still want the sausage cooker. I still want the sausage cooker we talked about all oh, the Oh the Johnsonville
0: Brat cooker?
1: Yeah, I still want you're the an Johnsonville Brat cooker. Why you're are you an calling idiot. me an idiot? That's thing is I still think it's a one cool. trick
0: pony, man. Come yes, on.
1: But I, I like Johnsonville Brats. I would actually, I would legitimately use that thing. I would. And yeah, I, you that's know what? Great. Why your don't you be an adult time, and cook
0: it like everyone else does?
1: No, your answer at the time was, "This thing is stupid. You're going to find it in a year at a yard sale." That was. Yeah, and I'm sure. Four years ago, I still have not found a Johnson's. All right, grill dude. Rod. Next one I find, George I will. I will, I will buy a it and yard ship it to you. I will drive out there and get that bitch. Dude, if come you buy on. It I will if you buy it. I will if you buy it. I will come. And I, but by that, I mean I will drive out there and and I will you know. Well, I, I hope I that's it. what you mean because I yeah. don't want
0: herpes. No, you
1: don't. That's very very. very good that's where i was going with that joke you got it sir
0: (laughs) oh boy
1: you you just know that aaron is sitting at home with his drawing pad right now trying to come up with a lot
0: a cartoon for this to put on the facebook page mr Mr. babel is doing that and the other aaron is just shaking her head (laughs) smacking her forehead (laughs) so so there's that jesus christ so did you see the little
1: cartoon he drew for the limp ball monsters
0: I just saw it, yeah. yeah it uh, I just, I'm waiting
1: for him to draw gummy squatch at this point. So, all right, yeah. we're done. Well, we're done. <laughs> we are. We are. We're we're done because I'm cooked and it's first thing in yeah. the morning and I'm tired and I need coffee. So, uh. anyways, wow. uh, this is a cold sore infected Rojan. Peace out from Detroit.
0: This is Lobo from Connecticut. Yeah, I, try to top that with something stupid. I, I, yes. Uh, glitter is the herpes of crafts. <laughs> Merry Christmas! If you do it, you fucker! <laughs> <laughs> Peace, Tell folks. me I'm wrong! You can't get rid of glitter, it's everywhere! It'll be oh. up in the crack of your ass, even if you haven't touched glitter in two oh, years. God. It's fucking everywhere right, in the this The music
1: house. is playing now at this point, so guess what song I'm closing <laughs> the show out with? <laughs> uh,
0: what the fuck is this? I don't, um, yeah. Peace, Y'all know sports. what to buy. Bye! Bye. Mm.